0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz from Heels in the Courtroom. We're all super busy with trial prep this week, so we're avoiding burnout and dropping one of our favorite previous episodes. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Keels in the Courtroom. I'm Elizabeth McNulty, and today I'm joined by Mary Simon and Megan Crow. Today, we're going to talk about something that I've been wanting to t- do an episode on since we started podcasting, and the stars happened to align where we were the only three available to record today. So, we're going to be talking about something that we all have a decent amount of experience in, and that's being a young lawyer. So to me, the first few years of experience are kind of like dog years. So having one year of practice can kind of feel like seven when you're comparing it to someone who has no experience or is just starting out because you just learn so much information every day. It can be kind of overwhelming and every day you're doing something, you know, for the first time just over and over again, which I find to be a little bit exhausting, but it's really exciting at the same time. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is something that happens frequently I think to young lawyers especially on the plaintiff side because we go to hearings, we argue motions, we take depositions, we defend depositions and part of that is sometimes you're the youngest lawyer in the room, you know, it can be by 30 years and I know I've heard other lawyers at our firm say this, and I really do think that it's true, is that preparedness is the great equalizer. Being prepared will help you to walk in that room with confidence and get the job done without being super intimidated by, you know, people who it feels like have a lot more experience than you. Have you guys ever felt intimidated in these kinds of situations, and how have you dealt with that?
0: Well, first, just so the listeners know, I'm headed into – I think I'm, I just started or I'm in my fourth year now. And then, Elizabeth, what year are you in? I guess this is going to be my second, right? Yeah, that sounds right. And then, Megan, what about you?
2: This is also my second year.
0: Okay. Just to give them some context, because obviously you're saying that the three of us are pretty well-equipped to handle this topic. Elizabeth, to your question, being the youngest lawyer in the room – I 100% agree that being prepared, it eliminates for me a lot of that intimidation because you know that you're prepared to handle anything that comes up. And even the stuff that's new that you might have not handled before, you at least have the confidence to know that you know your case in and out. So anything you say can be advocating for your client. So at any time when I am thinking in my head, hmm, what's the best way to respond to this issue that's come up in the moment when you need to answer someone just remember the advocacy part, and that usually kind of guides the answer you can give. The second thing I wanted to talk about is that I have learned, and I learned very early on, you gotta let the other lawyers know what you're gonna put up with and what you're not gonna put up with. You have to set the stage, especially being a young female attorney. A lot of times we are in depositions with male lawyers who are 20 and 30 years older than us. That's a regular part of our job, especially in depositions. I think almost in every single deposition I've had where things have gotten not, I don't want to use the word heated, just adversarial. It's an adversarial system. I have been very, very clear to the other attorney. If it's my deposition, then it's my deposition. You're not going to do speaking objections. You're not going to talk over me. You're not going to cut me off. And it sounds you know, like, whoa, Mary, calm down. But quite frankly, if you don't do that, then the other lawyer is going to take advantage of every single opportunity they have to coach the witness. I also am very fortunate at this firm to have learned that under some really great attorneys. So if you attend a deposition with a lawyer who has clearly set the stage for themselves early, you learn how to do it. You learn the rhetoric. You know how to do it respectfully. You know how to state exactly what you need to state to continue the deposition or the hearing, whatever's going on. But you cannot... You cannot let another attorney walk all over you or think that they're going to talk before you talk at a hearing if it's your motion or cut you off and talk to the judge. That's not okay. And there's a way to be respectful and go about it. And I think the earlier you do that in a deposition or in a court hearing, the quicker you will gain the respect of the other lawyer. And if you don't gain their respect and you gain their ignorance or their rude comments, you know, whatever that's, that's on them. It's a poor reflection on them. It it won't be on you.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a great point, especially because it can be a little uncomfortable at first to kind of stand your ground on those things, especially as a young lawyer. And then even as a woman, I think it's something that unfortunately we'll probably deal with in our careers longer than maybe our male colleagues that have the same amount of experience as us. But I think it's important to know that just because you're younger doesn't mean that you don't know as much, or you know maybe you do have more experience than the older people. So I think it's important to kind of put yourself out there and. Gain a reputation that you're not going to be messed with. Megan, I know you've been doing a lot of things for the first time here as of late. So, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so
2: I would agree with both of you that preparedness is key. I, like Elizabeth, am in my second year, but unlike Elizabeth, I've only been practicing plaintiff's law for about a month and a half. And so, I'm especially new to a lot of things because in my previous job, I didn't have a lot of courtroom experience or deposition experience. So I think that preparedness is definitely key. And I find myself over-preparing. And something that may take a more experienced lawyer five minutes to prep for, a status conference or something small like that, I will spend... A lot more time going over all the documents making sure I fully understand the procedural posture of the case since I'm still pretty new in all of my cases and just spend that extra time preparing for things even if it isn't really relevant for that specific hearing or that specific thing that you're doing in front of the court it makes me feel a lot more confident in being in that room with people who are a lot more experienced and don't really need that extra prep time it makes me feel like i'm on a little bit more of an even footing as them something else that i wanted to mention is i have now done some in-person hearings and some zoom hearings in my time here and i almost feel a little bit more confident on the Zoom hearings because everyone is kind of confined to those same size boxes on the screen. And sometimes it can be more intimidating, I think, in person, seeing the body language of the attorneys who are a lot more experienced, maybe know the judge, the way they're interacting. That can be really intimidating to someone who's not really spent much time in the courtroom like me. So having everyone appear at least on equal footing on a Zoom screen makes me feel a lot more confident in being able to stand my ground or, you know, talk the talk, walk the walk. Right. And you're equally at the bench, right? So you're Mm -hmm. not standing (laughs) in like a head or two
0: shorter than the attorney standing next to you. And I also, this made me laugh. I was thinking about just the comments on kind of like asserting your confidence earlier, especially as a young woman. And I, the first time I did this, and I think it's most pertinent for this episode, us being all young lawyers, and I was in my first year and I was taking, I think it was a corporate rep depo, and I was taking corporate rep depo and the other lawyer was just really, uh, they're just objecting at every single thing that I would ask. And I, I said, I can't even count how many times on the record that I said, respectfully, I'm going to ask you again. Stop the speaking objections. And the other lawyer went, respectfully, I'm I'm going to. No. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It was so funny. And I just sat there and I was like, you know what? I'm so glad this is recorded. We've got the lawyer (laughs) on the line doing that. It was just a funny experience. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing all the things that I should be doing And another lawyer's looking at me across the table, literally mocking me, but I just didn't say anything. You know, as time goes on today, I think if that happened, I might say something. And I didn't then, but I laugh at how we're on a really thin line of being young and inexperienced, but also having to really drill down our confidence and our assertiveness. I guarantee you any lawyer who's starting out taking depositions, this will happen to them. You will ask a question And whether there's one attorney on the other side or four, you'll get an eye roll or a sigh or, ugh. And it makes you look back at your question that you asked, thinking, is it a dumb question that I'm asking? Should I not be going down this line of questioning? Or is it okay? And they're just trying to get me to stop asking these questions. And in the last deposition I was in where that happened, it was a medical expert. and I just kept going down my line of questioning. And, and quite frankly, I did have to ask the same question in three different ways because I didn't get it. I didn't get what the expert's opinion was. And I got a lot of eye rolls from the two other lawyers. And, and it was on Zoom. And so it's funny. You can see all the little Hollywood squares rolling their eyes. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if I leave this deposition without a really good understanding of what this person's opinions are and, and the basis for them, I haven't done my job. So I got to keep asking the question. So another thing for young lawyers is to not take into consideration another lawyer's frustration or body language or if they're aggravated that, oh, here she goes asking all these questions that you can just skip over in two questions. Well, we can't yet. So we're not gonna. And I remember leaving the deposition, calling one of the lawyers at our firm, and I was complaining to him thinking okay, I was going down this line of questioning, but I asked it this many ways. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Yep. You do that. Keep doing it. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's your deposition. You're paying for the doctor's time. That's fine. And it takes practice to be able to have that happen and let it just roll off and
2: keep asking our questions. I had a very similar situation. It was actually the first deposition that I was ever taking by myself. And it was of the defendant. And it was a line of questioning. I was going down and every single question on this similar line of questioning, I was getting objection, objection, objection from the other attorney and I kept just Kind of asking my questions going on and every single time I got an objection and afterwards I felt really kind of beat down about it or I thought I was doing something wrong and I didn't know if that was an okay line of questioning to go down. I didn't know if I was doing something wrong or if that attorney was just kind of being a jerk. And I talked to my supervising attorney about it afterwards and he was like, no, that's exactly what you should have been asking. Don't stop doing that. And so the next deposition I had that was a similar type of deposition, in a different case, I asked the same line of questioning and I didn't get any objections to any of the whole line of questioning. Right. And we got exactly the testimony we wanted from it. So I was like, okay, it wasn't just... Me, (laughs) yeah. It's not
1: that it's not just you. It's not you, right? It's actually not you. You're just doing a good job. My first deposition, the first objection I got, I was like taken aback. Like, what am I doing wrong? And it's like (laughs) nothing. It's okay. Just like keep going. I remember I had a horrible feeling after it, but that's just how it goes. But it's it's alarming at first for some reason. I don't know why.
2: I think that is one thing that makes it particularly hard to be a young lawyer in the pandemic, is we are having to learn a lot more by trial and error right now rather than observation. I feel like you learn a lot from hallway chatter, talking to people in the office when they get back from court or strategizing with them about a case in the hallway, and you just pick up tidbits about the practice of law from that.
1: And those are those moments are fewer and far between now. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. A lot harder. It feels a lot more like trial by fire doing it all in a pandemic. I don't know why. I guess just everything's remote. So you have to be a lot more purposeful about the questions that you ask because you can't just like go walk down the hall. But I still think a lot of times the questions are still worthwhile and still need to be asked. I can't call someone a hundred times a day every time I have a question. So you just kind of got to go with your instincts and figure it out, which is something I've learned a lot over the past year. It's hard. It's definitely hard. And it's not something that older attorneys can necessarily relate to because it's not how they had to do it. So I think it takes some understanding from those more experienced attorneys that are working with younger lawyers to kind of sit down and maybe have some patience for some questions. But I get it. No one's lived through a pandemic before. There's so many things that I don't
2: think really warrant a email or a phone call in and of themselves. I would rather just walk down the hallway, pop my head into someone's office and ask. And I don't want to feel intrusive by these unsolicited phone calls some emails all throughout the day, but there's no other way to do it. you got to do it.
0: I just keep a list of questions that I have on different cases. I'll call another attorney at the office and kind of categorize my questions if they're a strategy question or a law question. And a lot of times the law questions get less and less because you can just look it up and figure it out. But the ones that don't have a clear answer and I'm thinking more about case strategy, I think that an attorney who's been practicing a little bit longer, well, I do think they appreciate just having questions and the ability to give advice. I think that those strategy questions and framing it that way as a young attorney, it feels a little bit less nagging or aggravating a supervising attorney. So that's that's one thing that I've done is say, I have a case and I know in th- three seconds that I can summarize the facts of the case and catch the person up on the procedural posture of the case it like immediately. And then say, this is about strategy. And I'm thinking long-term. And it's it's something that you're framing it as, I've already done all of the things I need to do, and the answer to this question, I can't figure out on my own. Or I can just make the decision on my own, but why would I not ask someone who's done it before and want to learn from them? And I, I think it's a nice balance of you're getting your question answered, and you're also using it as an opportunity to learn from an attorney from their experience, not necessarily asking them. You know What's the filing deadline? That stuff you're not asking anymore, but it's more of a strategic question that I'd appreciate if I were a more experienced attorney, someone asking me a strategy question. It's like, oh, they want to hear what my input is. What lawyer doesn't want someone to be asking them what they do because
1: you want to learn from them? Right. You know? That's really good advice. Another thing that has come up a lot with conversations with friends like other young professionals not necessarily just lawyers but other you know young women in a professional role What's the line between being the younger, less experienced person on your team, being a team player, you're obviously going to get some grunt work stuff more experienced attorneys don't want to do don't have time to do and that's part of it. It can suck, but it's always good experience. Every time that's happened to me, I found that it's been good experience. But there's got to be a line there where there are some things that you know I get asked to do that make me think to myself, am I getting asked to do this because I'm the younger person on the team or because I'm the woman in the room? What do you guys think about that? Is that something that you've thought about? I think it's a
0: case-by-case basis, and we all can feel the moment where you're just tossed, like for lack of a better term, the crappiest item on the list to do. I think that it obviously, if it's something that has to do with the case that is necessary and has to get done, and it's not something that an attorney who's higher up than where you're at right now is normally going to do on a case, that's one thing. I think what I've learned in the last couple years is being asked to do unnecessary work does not benefit you. And it doesn't benefit the case, and it doesn't benefit the attorney you're working for. So I find that line of necessity to be where I can draw the distinction between if something really needs to be done and not. So I think as time goes on, you learn what is necessary and what isn't. The difference, I think, too, is the person acknowledging what the work is and that it's either more aggravating to do or a big time suck that they know they're not doing and they're putting it on you. Even that acknowledgement, I think, makes a difference. When there's an acknowledgement of, hey, this really needs to get done. I know that you don't normally do this. I know it's gonna take a lot of your time. Can you please handle it? That has a totally different spin to it than being in the courtroom with four male lawyers who are 20 years older who throw you the memo form at the end of the hearing okay, that's two totally different tones. So I think for me, what it comes down to is the tone in which it's assigned and the necessity and knowing even as a young lawyer, you do have authority to assess necessity. I think that's part of being a lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer, especially.
2: I agree with what Mary has said. Something for me being only in my second year, I'm not going to be one to say no to anything. I haven't really had any experiences yet where I felt that a lot of things are being poured on me just because I'm the woman in the room. But I definitely, I'm I'm thinking of one example right now where I was working, I was kind of spinning my wheels trying to figure out something that was kind of an administrative task. And I had drafted some correspondence and I was trying to figure out all these attachments that were supposed to go with it. I went to ask my supervising attorney about it. And he was like, don't waste your time doing that. That is something that an assistant or a paralegal can do. Don't feel shy about asking them to do it. And I did feel shy. I was like, I feel like I should be doing all this grunt work. And you reassured me like no it's okay so I think having a good relationship with your assistants and paralegals is really important and just feeling comfortable of hey can you do this if this isn't something that you do let me know and I'm more than happy to do it but having that relationship where you can feel comfortable asking them to do stuff that you honestly shouldn't be wasting your time with as an attorney is important There is no
0: plaintiff's lawyer who's ever going to say no to a more efficient way of getting something done. And if it's a little bit
1: different than what the attorney has suggested, don't be shy to suggest it. Yeah. Especially because I've found that working with You know, a more experienced attorney, a lot of things are just flowing through you. So you're getting told to like do this, but that actually means go tell your paralegal or secretary to do this, not do this, which is something I might have had to learn the hard way. But I think that that's a nice segue into something that I found to be kind of uncomfortable after, you know, starting out as an attorney. And I think it part of it might be because I was a law clerk at the same firm. And so all of a sudden one day you're like, status has changed all of a sudden i you know had a paralegal and i was working on a team and i was seen as not they weren't working for me i don't feel it that way and i prefer it to be more of a team thing but they do you know come to you with questions and you assign them work which i think can be kind of hard for young lawyers, and it's kind of a challenging dynamic at first, but I think that that relationship is probably one of the most valuable you can have at a firm if you can learn to cultivate that. Over the past year, we went a period of time without a paralegal, and it was during that point I learned how much I'd probably taken for granted that role and how vital it is to your success as an attorney because there is so much stuff that they do in a day that I had no idea how to do and had to learn how to do it very quickly. And so I think that the biggest advice I could give to other young attorneys is to get close to your paralegal because they can teach you just as much as, you know, a partner at your firm.
2: It is weird, but I agree with you 100%. Cultivating that relationship is key. I think that Me being the newest employee at this entire firm, I have the tendency to want to defer to almost everyone else because I'm more of the mindset of, you know how things work. If you know how this is, I'm going to defer to you. And honestly, so far, I've had a great relationship with my paralegal and she helps me out a ton on a daily basis. And I really don't feel uncomfortable Working with her anymore because I definitely do feel like we are a team. I don't really feel like it's one person above the other. It's really a joint effort. And honestly, she makes our world go round. I think a couple things go into this. First, you have to have
0: expectations. Even being a first year lawyer or a second year lawyer, whatever, if you're the attorney and you're guiding the case, and you're the one making case decisions and it's your case. You have to know what you want and you have to know how to ask for it. I absolutely adore and love working with my paralegal now. A prior paralegal that I worked with, she would tell me how something would get sent out or she would tell me how just things like that. She'd tell me my own preference. And I didn't even know that I had a preference because I was you know, newly working with her And it became impossible for me to then undo that. And that only gets messy. It's not impossible to undo it. It just requires a very nice, direct conversation of actually, I've decided differently than what we've been doing, you know? So even as a young attorney, if you're in an office where you're expected to have a paralegal and use that paralegal effectively and work well with them to move your cases, then you are the one driving the ship. So you've got to learn what your preferences are on things. And I think that benefits both you and your paralegal. So being very clear about your expectations is super important in the same way that it is being an attorney who works for another attorney. When the person who I'm working for has really clear expectations of what needs to be done and how, it makes it so much easier for me because I'm not left guessing, right? The flip side to that is... I absolutely respect the hell out of my paralegal. Once you have that relationship with somebody, you don't want to do anything to compromise it. So be very clear about scheduling. If there's something that comes up in your paralegal's life and your paralegal says, hey, I need to ask if I can take these days off, that means they get those days off, in my opinion, right? So it's respecting. It's a two-way street. Respect it just as much as they're respecting your time. You've got to respect their time. Know if you've given your paralegal 100 things to do. It's not realistic to have them do 100 things in one week, right? You have to manage it, look out for your paralegal as well as your own client's interest in terms of scheduling things far enough in advance. And I really think that those two things will create a really healthy and productive relationship I just think that it creates the most productivity and that's what you want to do and recognize success. If your paralegal just knocks something out of the park for you, I can't tell you how many times I've loved calling my paralegal and saying, "Whoa, this was dynamite." Because I like hearing that, you know, and it makes me want to do better work. It's nice being in a position as a young lawyer because you directly reap the benefits of that working for another lawyer so you know how good it feels to pass that on to an assistant who, to both of your points, carry your entire team, right, and keep the cases going. So it's nothing to take for granted, but it's definitely a
2: new concept for a young lawyer. Definitely. Something along that similar line – Something that's new for young lawyers, and particularly at our firm, is having the law clerks to help us with work. That's something that I haven't really had exposure to because at a lot of law firms, law clerks are just a summer position or, you know, they get kind of, quote unquote, fake work. And here, the law clerks are not at all doing fake work they're doing real necessary parts of the cases and it took me a while at first when my supervising attorney was like this is our law clerk you can tell him to do things and i was like <laughs> i don't know what to tell him to do <laughs> and it wasn't until i've been here about a month and a half and i just had him do something for the first time i was working on a response to a motion for summary judgment and all of a sudden I had some questions that were very legitimate points that I wanted to raise in this response. And I was kind of working on something else and I knew I needed this research done. So I was like, this seems like a really valid thing to give to the law clerk to do. And I didn't feel like I was giving him busy work. It was a real necessary part of the case, but it was something that made sense for me to not spend my time on. And that would be beneficial to, to have someone else do. So it kind
1: of just has to come naturally yeah i totally agree there's nothing better though than giving a law clerk some research to do and then not having to do it yourself and then their work is great i just think it's just so remarkable when that can happen
0: and be careful when you say i love research because i've said that before and then yeah. it was like oh here you go i'm like oh okay
1: wonderful i don't love it this much but too late so on the topic of being a young lawyer which as we all know is challenging enough in and of itself and then you throw in a pandemic It just gets a little bit crazier and a little bit harder. I think I can speak for both Megan and I. We basically had just started practicing as you know lawyers when the stay-at-home orders. We've now been working from home longer than we were ever in the office. That is so weird. Yeah, no, I feel like a Zoom lawyer, like I only practice <laughs> through Zoom. So I think that that certainly has some unique challenges that other young lawyers haven't experienced if you didn't just start practicing during a pandemic. So what have you guys found to be maybe the best or the worst parts of working from home?
2: I think we've already touched a little bit on some of the challenges about trying to learn how to be an attorney remotely and not being able to learn from observation from other lawyers in the office, in the room, just observing them doing their thing. But I will say on the side of optimism, I think one good thing about working at home for a young attorney is that we are arguably the most Technologically savvy and flexible. Not that older generations are not or cannot be these things, but I think growing up in a world where we've barely known anything but technology is an advantage. And we're not so yet set in our ways of practice, and we can pretty easily make adjustments to our work and lifestyle. I think, hands down, the best thing is Zoom court dockets. I know a lot of people will say this about depositions too, but I think. Personally, depositions are more significant parts of litigation, so I wouldn't mind being inconvenienced by them. But if you're on a court's docket call for just a status conference or a quick hearing, that'll take two minutes. Instead of driving hours and taking half your day to go across the state for a 10-minute hearing, you can now just log in and it'll take you away for only 15 to 30 minutes. It's great. Another thing, Megan, that you and Elizabeth
0: both talked about not learning in person or being in the office with other attorneys. One thing that you can do, I mean, I have my law clerks do this, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't do this if need be. If your supervising attorney's handling something over Zoom, a Zoom depot, just join the Zoom call. Mute yourself, turn off your video
1: even. I've done that one or two times and it's helped quite a bit. One last thing about working from home, we kind of touched on it earlier, but how do you stay in contact with your team? So, Maybe that's other attorneys that you're working on some cases with, or you're a paralegal, or how do you stay in touch with them and make sure that you touch base on a regular basis?
2: So I think in the world of working from home, when people are kind of – Not really on-call 24-7, but you know they can pretty much be available at any time. I think it's important to recognize each other's boundaries. I know for me personally, the supervising attorney that I work on uh, 99.9% of my cases with, we have email, calling, texting. It depends on the setting and the factors on how we communicate with each other, how important the communication is. I'm always the person who's going to say, call me, text me whenever it works. But if someone else indicates to you that they don't want to be contacted or called before or after a certain hour, I think it's really important now to be mindful of that and do your best to work with each other because everyone's kind of dealing with different things. I know I'm young. I don't have kids. I don't have to designate that family time. But I know with people with young kids, it's more difficult. They have different factors that affect their working time and I just think it's important to know who you're communicating with and try your best to work with what works with them.
0: I think I have regular
2: work hours, the regular
0: work day, but I don't really have a hard like cutoff time. It's not that I'm, you know, doing research at 9 p.m., but I still might be glancing at my phone, work email. I guess I did do that pre pandemic, but now I find myself checking it more. I find myself looking at my email almost as much as I'm looking at my texts and stuff. And I'm thinking, man, Mary, you really need to turn off the notifications maybe so you're not, you know, checking for subscription emails in your work email that you don't need to be looking at at 7 p.m. You know, I think expectations again comes into play. You just you got to have expectations with you and the people you're working with. I'm not a huge texter with staff. I only will do that if it's just a quick question of maybe something I'm looking for that I just know my paralegal will know where that is really quickly. And I know that even other teams in our office work a lot more with texting. I do with lawyers, the lawyers in our office, I'll text them anytime and I'll expect a text at any time. But one of the things that I do with my paralegal is that I don't text her for substantive work stuff. But like the other day, I sent her a couple emails and she hadn't responded to any emails and it was one o'clock or two o'clock. And I didn't mind. Nothing needed to be done that day. But I genuinely just wanted to see if she was okay, you know, or just check in. So I shot her a text and said, hey, there's nothing because the last thing you want to do is like panic someone, right, that they need to be doing something. So I just prefaced the text with all is good. I just wanted to make sure that like, you're good. And if you're off for the day, that's totally fine. I just wanted to check in, see that you're okay. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm just working on. And then she told me what project she was working on. So that's a better form of communication to me than you're not on call 24-7, but the line of communications there if something needs to come up or you just want to check in.
2: Yeah. I actually, I operate pretty much the same as Mary. I don't have a problem in texting other attorneys and do frequently, depending on what the work is and, you know, where we are. And I find myself less inclined to do that with a paralegal. I pretty much only communicate with my paralegal via call or email during typical normal business hours.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
2: I think that being a young lawyer and being a lawyer in this work from home pandemic situation is an interesting crossroads with this specific topic because, as a young attorney, I definitely feel that desire or need to be quote unquote grinding all the time. And, you know, if my supervising attorney needs something, I definitely want to be there to handle it. And I think that has a lot to do with age and experience. And then the pandemic kind of exacerbated that. At the same time, I will say, I think for a while there was an over glamorization of overworking and now people are starting to push back against that and prioritizing those moments or recognizing the importance of self-care. And I think that we bring it upon ourselves because we all are passionate about the work that we're doing. And so we might not be being told to finish this brief at midnight on a Saturday, but sometimes we... Individually feel compelled to do that, and then thoughts run through our head, and we email their lawyers at very weird times. I think that it's
0: it's a boundary of what is being asked. You know, it's I don't really care if someone wants to call me at eight because they're excited about how a depot went. Yeah. I don't really care about that. But if someone's calling me and saying, "Hey, I want to update our to do list <laughs> at eight p.m." That's not something I'm going to be real keen on. That's when I'd probably want to open my mouth and say, can we just talk about this tomorrow or do we need to talk about this now? But that hasn't been a huge issue.
1: Does anyone have any, you know, what's your takeaway? What would you have told yourself when you were first starting out that you think would have lessened your burden or made life a little bit easier if you'd had that one piece of advice?
2: I think for me, it's fake it until you make it. It's a cliche, but it's true. If you prepare and you walk into the room and you act confident and other people trust that you know what you're doing, eventually you will know what you're doing. My takeaways
0: from today's conversation would be whether you're working at home, whether you're working in person, you have to know what your goal is. You have to know how you want to accomplish your goal. And then it's on you to navigate with the people you need to work with to get the job done. If that means asserting confidence early on to accomplish a task, if it means setting a boundary early to accomplish a task, just know exactly what you need to get done, how you want to get it done as the attorney managing your own cases and take every step you can to be the most efficient in getting that accomplished.
1: Mine is sort of along the lines of both of those. I think that it's so important to just trust your instincts. You know what you're doing. You just have to do it with confidence and other people will believe that you know what you're doing. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us today. I hope you all enjoyed our episode. As always, if you have a comment or question, reach out to us on our website at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And I just want to give a quick plug for our colleagues' other podcasts. The Jury is Out, hosted by John Simon and Eric Veith. And then our newest show is called Results Don't Lie, hosted by Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon. And it's about the landmark case Kuhn v. Walden, which involve medical malpractice claims about overprescription of opioids. It's really interesting. I'd encourage you guys to listen to all of those. But first, make sure you're caught up on our episodes of Appeals in the Courtroom. Thanks for listening. And we will uh, see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at HeelsInTheCourtroom.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.